Well, hello there, wonderful teachers. I want to invite you to an event we're doing this summer. It's in Cincinnati, Ohio, so you have to be able to make it there, but it might be worth traveling for if you're able to. It's happening on July 20th and 21st, so that's over a weekend, and it's going to be the best two days for teachers. We're going to have a ton of fun. We're going to learn a lot about pedagogy and creative teaching and business. We have two fabulous guest speakers and we're even going to finish with an optional Kaylee. That's an Irish dancing party. So I hope you'll be able to join me. Just go to vibrantmusicteaching.com slash turbo that's dot com slash t-u-r-b-o 24 the numbers two four. I hope you'll check it out view all the details there and I hope to see you in Cincinnati in July. On with the episode. Vibrant, vibrant, vibrant music teaching. Proven and practical tips, strategies, and ideas for music teachers. This is the Vibrant Music Teaching Podcast. I'm Nicola Canton, and today we're talking about setting up a lending library in your piano studio. You can find the accompanying article that goes along with this episode at vibrantmusicteaching.com slash 170 or colourfulkeys.ie slash 170 if you're not a member. Welcome back, beautiful teachers. I hope you're having a fabulous week, as always. And I'm excited to talk to you about lending libraries today. But you didn't think you were going to hear that. I'm excited to talk to you about libraries. Wow, how thrilling. But no, I really am, because I really think this can make a big difference in your studio if you approach it the right way. And I think that it's something that a lot of teachers want to do, but maybe haven't found the right way to implement it, or have been reluctant to try because they're worried about the cost or the damage to their property that might happen. So we're going to unpack all of those things today and get you started and up and running with some kind of lending library that suits your studio. So let's start with the why. If you don't already have a lending library for your students, why would you want to bring this in? Doesn't it seem like just an additional hassle? And what would you even put in it and what would be the benefits? Well, there are two sides to a lending library and I would suggest having both of these if possible or maybe just one if that's what appeals to you slash suits your students' needs. But the two sides to my lending library and many other teachers as well, is a games part and a books part. So you may have only thought of doing one or the other, but they can both be an enormous benefit to your studio. The benefit of loaning out games to your students, well, there are several. Number one is time. Many teachers start this because they don't have time to play games with their students every week. They know the benefit of them, but they're stuck with shorter lesson lengths or something like that. And they just can't find the time every single week to play games and they can't do additional group workshops or it's just still not enough games, right? Who can have enough games ever? And so having a loaning area of your studio where you can lend out games to your students gives them that additional opportunity to play and to reinforce those concepts. It also means you can get parents and siblings involved in playing games at home And you can generally make practice and especially the theory part of practice a lot more fun if you're assigning games. And you can only really assign them if you're loaning them out because 
If you're not loaning them, it means the parent has to purchase them and print them themselves, or maybe you have a license to get parents to print them, but still you have to get them to then put them together. It really makes the most sense if you loan them out, especially since students only need them for a short period of time, right? That particular game is only relevant to them for a few weeks or a few months or every so often over the years, but not consistently in the way that a piano book would be. Now, speaking of books, you may also want a lending library for books. Reasons for this include variety of repertoire and sight reading. That both of those would be the main valid reasons for having a lending library for books. What I'm not suggesting here is that you loan out all the books your students need and they don't get their own copies ever. There's a few reasons I don't like this. Number one, well, we need to support publishers. I mean, we do need to buy new editions, new copies of books for them to stay alive. But that's not my main reason. My main reason is that I, as a student, like looking back over my old books. And I think for students, they also value it more when they own it. It's a very different thing if you have a loan of a book and it has someone else's pencil markings in it and then you give it back to your teacher when you're done and you only ever have your one book that you're using right now. You don't get to look back over the old books. You don't get to use them as sight reading once you've completely forgotten them later, which is what I did as a teenager. I had totally forgotten all of the pieces in, say, my first John Thompson's and I would just read through them just maybe to distract myself from real work. But, you know, it was good sight reading. So I love to have students have their own books. I think it places greater value on them and it's totally worth it, in my opinion. But the loaned out books are useful for providing greater opportunities for sight reading and greater variety that you can play through just to test out different genres and different things. So this is something where if your student has family members that already learnt piano, they have a natural opportunity for this. They probably have a library of books at home that they can pick up anytime they like. But many of your students don't have that. So this really helps to even the playing field between students who come from a very musical family and ones who don't. So if I've convinced you you need either one or the other or both of these, a book lending library or a games lending library, let's talk about how you actually organize these. Now I have linked in the article to our full post about printing, organizing, cutting out games and putting them together and all that stuff. So if you're curious about my whole system, definitely check that out. Basically what I do with my games is I put them together in folders with everything I need in that packet. So on the front of the folder, it has the title page. With Vibrant Music Teaching Games, we always give you a, a cover page. It's totally optional, of course, but it is very useful because it has the title and the graphics and it looks fun. And then at the top, there's a banner with the concept covered and the level, just the two key pieces of information as I see it that you need to be able to glance at. If you do not use Vibrant Music Teaching Games or if you have some that are from other sites, great. Great to have all different sources of these things. I suggest you follow that same format though. Say you have a mixture and you use some from different sites. I mean, I have some 
Susan Paradis games from years ago that I downloaded and I just created the same type of cover for those. So I would suggest you just write in the same format on all of your games, even if you're just using a, a permanent marker or whatever, just write in big block letters so it's easy to glance at and read and put each one in an individual folder. The reason I love that is because you can put everything in there. So I use plastic folders with a snap closure or a popper on the front. I just like that because they actually close. I heard from a teacher the other day that she uses ones with Velcro on them. That's great too. You want it to close though because you want to be able to put the game board in there, the tokens for the game, the game cards, and the dice if it needs dice, anything that they need to play it. You want it all to be in one package. Oh yeah, and the instructions. So in Vibrant Music Teaching Games, the instructions are always on page two. Just print out that page and put it in the folder so that parents can help the student follow the instructions at home. Now for books, if you have, say, a big library of books that you're going to lend out, With the ones that are more random, so I have a collection of lending books, which are actually random books, like the ones I was telling you about, not necessarily John Thompson, but various books I used growing up, and various books that students have maybe used for a few weeks, and then it's turned out not to be a good fit, but there's some markings in it. So they're generally kind of cast-offs from different situations. And because there's such a variety there, and they're not necessarily for method books or anything so obvious, I actually put a label on the front of those with the level. I do my levels according to roughly to Jane McGrath, my version, my estimation of what level Jane McGrath would put on it. If you're not familiar with her, she wrote The Pianist's Guide to Standard Teaching and Performance Literature? Repertoire? Anyway, I always get that title wrong, but it's something like that. If you look up Jane McGrath, you'll find her. She also put together the Masterwork Classics series, which is a series of repertoire collections based on that system. Anyway, I like those levels. They're quite specific and I'm used to them. So I'll put those on the front of my lending library books as well. And then once you have all of those things, once you can see at a glance what something is, that's when you need to categorize things. And this is where teachers can kind of debate this not hotly no one gets irate about it but teachers have also different ways of doing things and I often see one teacher saying oh well I organize them by such and such and another teacher saying oh I didn't think of that I should change my whole system to that and I want to step in and say no if you didn't think of it you definitely shouldn't so the main thing about categories is that they're the way you think of them So like with my general books, and this isn't my lending library, but it's how I organize all the books in my studio. I'm looking at some of the categories right now. And here are the ones I can see from my chair in my piano teaching room right now. I see trios, duets, teacher copies. Those are actually teacher duets and some older editions that we use just for reference. Then I see spotlight and pizzazz, piano pronto supplements, other supplements. That's what I see right now. Now that's a small tiny portion of the magazine folders in my studio but you'll see that those don't really make any sense. Maybe you don't even know what I'm talking about when I say spotlight and pizzazz. Those are two types of piano pronto supplements and then the one next to it says 
Piano Pronto Supplement. So that means the other ones. As long as it makes sense to me, it doesn't matter. It's how I think of them. And they are grouped like that in my head, right? So that's what makes sense. That's how I'm going to find them. I will know where to look for it. So here's some examples of categories you might do, but keep in mind it's going to be your version of these. You might group games by concepts, by level or ability level of the student, by the most popular to the least popular, the ones you use the most to the least, by the exam level if you use an exam system, or maybe by the more general topic. It all depends on the way you think of them and the way you're going to use them and the quantity of games you have for various different things. So for my games library, I have to have things like note reading, one, two, no, note names, sorry, not even note reading, note names, one, two, and three, I think I have for those, plus a separate one that has landmark notes only. And then I have another set, which is rhythm, one, two, and three. But then for, say, finger numbers and piano keys, those are together, right? That's one category because they're both new student concepts and there isn't enough to fill two folders. So you get what I'm saying. Now, keep in mind that I have a vast quantity of games because I print every game that we do inside Viper Music Teaching. So I have every game on hand and sometimes I have multiple copies of those games for various reasons I won't go into here. But again, it's what you think of. For books and sheet music, some of the categories you might try are composers, genre, level, publisher, colour of the cover. Many people think that way. And so if you can instantly picture the cover, maybe it is easier to organise it in a rainbow. Honestly, it's about what you think of. I told you some of my categories so far, but I also have some that are organized by composer. Those are my more like advanced collections and stuff. Those are organized by composer because I think of it as Beethoven. I don't think of it as any other thing. I don't really care what level it is, or it might be a mixture of levels within it. If it's Beethoven, I'm going to remember it's Beethoven. Whereas if it's, I don't want to say any composer is less important, but if it's, say, Alyssa Milne, I'm looking at a book of hers now, that's in other supplements. And that is how I think of it, because it's at that earlier level, right? So, again, it's about what you think of. Take a moment to try and recall a particular book and think about what way you categorize it naturally. That's how you should organize things. It's entirely individual. Now let's talk about tracking these items, because they're going to be loaned out to students, and you need to know who has what to be able to ask for them back when they inevitably go walkabout. So I'm going to give you two simple options here because honestly, the simpler the better in this case, okay? Don't go create some amazing database system. It honestly, it won't be worth it. Here are two simple options. Number one is not something I do, but I think this is great. Number one is to, every time a student is about to borrow something, have them hold it up. So the student is in the photo holding book or game. So you can see the cover and just take a photo on your phone. This is so simple, it seems silly, but it's great. Because number one, you almost always have your phone, I would guess, with you. So even if you're travel teaching, you probably have your phone. You don't have to wait for an app or something to load or some system to be online, nothing like that. You're just taking a photo. 
You can see who the student is, you can see what the game or book is that they're borrowing. Your phone will naturally add the date to that photo, so you'll know when it was taken. And you can simply put it in a special folder for len called Lending Library or something like that. And then when they give it back to you, just delete the photo. Easy peasy. Option number two is a written list. If this seems simpler to you, go with this. If you are going to do a written list, I mean, you can have separate columns or whatever. That's great, but don't overthink it. The main thing with a written list is that you choose where you're going to put it. So if it's in a particular notebook, fine, great. But pick that notebook. Don't put it anywhere else, ever, and always have that notebook with you. If you're not going to always have that notebook on hand, don't put it there. If it's going to go in your phone, choose which app. Don't sometimes put it in your iPhone Reminders app and sometimes put it in Evernote and sometimes in Google Docs. It sounds silly, but we do this in the moment. If we haven't decided in advance, we'll just put it wherever and think, yeah, I'll transfer that later. But we won't. At least I wouldn't. So pick one spot and always put it there. Okay. Now let's talk about the budget. This tends to be the sticky spot for many teachers where they feel like, okay, great, but what happens when somebody loses something? What happens when I need to buy new things? How am I going to afford this? Where is this going to come from? So the first suggestion I'd like to make is a move to all-inclusive tuition. We have a whole separate article and podcast episode about this. If you're curious about the idea of including everything in your fees, like I do, then check that out. If you're not going to do that, maybe you could bring in a simpler registration fee. A registration fee can be part of your all-inclusive tuition, but it could also be specific to something like this, where you're using that money to put in a pot to buy lending library things each year. A registration fee has an extra benefit, which is it's a good way to have students reserve their spot for the next year. So you know who's coming back before a summer break starts or early on in the summer break, you know who's returning because they've put money down. Not just told you they will, they've actually put down money. And you can then set some portion of that aside or use all of that for your landing library. The other investment, though, that I'd like you to make is in a few different gadgets. So. Set aside some of that money for these things initially because they will pay off in the long term. Now, this is not an excuse to go to the craft store. Yes, I'm looking at you and buy all of the things, all of the fancy edging tools and glitter edges and ribbons and I don't know what else you want to buy, but don't. Okay, I'm talking about a few simple things here. So here's your shopping list if you don't have some of these things. First of all, you need a good printer if you're going to have a lending library because a lot of resources are digital these days. So if you're going to print out games or studio licensed books or sheet music, you need a good printer. And here's the thing about printers. The cheap ones, if you haven't realized this already, the cheap ones are just a trick to get you to buy really expensive ink. That's what they are. Okay, they're a loss leader. They're like what is it that grocery stores always include? Oh, toilet paper, right? Toilet paper is a lost leader. That's a good example of it. Where it's so cheap, their own brand toilet paper, they're undercutting everyone. And they do that just to bring you into the store. They don't care about the toilet paper. So that's what these printers often are. Is there a lost leader to get you to buy ink? So be careful when you're buying printers. Always look at the ink cost. 
And if possible, please get one that has refillable cartridges. I have one that where I can get the cartridges refilled and I actually have a subscription. Now, this company is only available in Ireland. So if you're in Ireland, go to Cartridge Green. They are amazing. I recommend them to everyone because it's better for the environment and it's way better for your pocket as well. It's so worth it. But if you don't have something like that, there are different subscription services in different countries, just not quite as good as that one. But just be careful of the ink cost. That's all I'm saying. And if possible, get ones that you can refill and that you can go to a shop that will just pour the ink in for you because then you don't waste all that plastic and it's better for the world. Now, next things in your list are much cheaper. Okay, we need a self-healing cutting mat. Self-healing, that sounds like a superpower. Here's what that is. It's that big green mat. They're almost always green, sometimes dark grey, that you will have seen if you've ever seen someone crafting things, scrapbooking, that kind of stuff. It's a big green piece of like rubbery material and it sits on top of your table and you use it to cut things on. It's called self-healing because you can cut things on it for literally years and you won't end up, it'll have kind of some marks on it, but it won't end up all uneven as a surface. I have had mine since a very, very long time. Let me see. I've had mine 14 years, so there you go, and it has been used, okay? So it's marked, it's even got some glue stains on it, but it still works great. So there's an investment for you. Buy a self-healing cutting mat so that you can use the next two things. A craft knife slash scalpel, non-surgical scalpel, they're sometimes called. This is for cutting out games or trimming down pages if you're printing out uh, studio licensed books, but it's especially if you're making games. The type of scalpel that I like is by Swan Morton. They're the ones that you can put the 10A blade on. All of this is listed in the article, by the way, so you don't have to remember all these details. Just go to colorfulkies.ie slash 170 later or vibrantmusicteaching.com slash 170 and you can check the details. But if you are getting that particular one, which is a Swan Morton scalpel that that you fit the 10A blades onto, please be careful not to get the 10 blades. Those are so annoying. I don't know why the better ones are called 10A, but anyway, I accidentally bought the 10s one time and they are completely useless because they're round and it makes it so inaccurate and irritating. Anyway, I've been holding on to that one for a while. That was 13 years ago, so. Or maybe it's 12, but still. I hate 10 blades. I love 10A blades. They're just sharp and pointy and simple. And if you get that type of knife, they're just a piece of metal. So they never break and you can replace those blades forever. Then you also need a metal ruler. So this is your set of three things. is your self-healing cutting mat, your scalpel and your metal ruler. And you use those three things together to cut out all the games. Again, check out the video if you want to see me do this. If you're not used to crafting and that kind of thing, check out the video. You'll see how I cut games out. I don't use scissors. They're not accurate enough for my tastes. But you do you. If you like using scissors, great, fine. This is just my recommendation. The last thing on my list is very optional. And this is for if you're going to buy a lot of studio licensed books or you already do. And you like having them as a book, right? So you don't like putting them in students' folders or things like that. Then a comb binder or a wire 
binder is what I'd recommend. I actually have a plastic comb binder and I wish I had the wire one, but opinions differ. So look at the books you prefer, but I I wish mine was the wire one. I bought the plastic one and kind of regret it, but it still works great. To go along with your printer and things like that, you will need regular paper and probably a heavier weight paper for things like covers and game cards, game boards that need to be sturdier. This is what Americans would call cardstock. We just call it card here, but cardstock. The weight I would recommend for that is 160 GSM, which is grams per square meter. Obviously, that's metric. I believe that equates to 60 pound cardstock. But if that sounds way off to you, I'm probably wrong. Take that with a grain of salt because the paper measurements do not translate well across the Atlantic. Now, you've budgeted for equipment, you've budgeted for the actual games and VMT membership, hopefully, and your studio licenses and digital copies. The other thing you need to budget for in there is replacements. And here's the deal with replacements go into this having a lending library, go into it knowing that children are children, kids are kids, okay? Stuff is going to get broken, stuff is going to get lost. Families cannot keep track of every little thing. So if you're going to have a lending library, you need to accept that. Honestly, you will sleep so much better if you just budget for some replacements. Now, while occasionally losing a game, or a book, or the dog eating it, or the hamster doing its business on it, all of these things happen, and they are if they're occasional, I think you just eat that cost, accept the family's apology, hopefully they do apologize, but that's it. Don't get annoyed about it, even if they don't apologize, and just move on. If it's happening again and again with the same family, and they happen to just be quite a scattered, unreliable with stuff type of family for whatever reason, just don't lend them things. That's my solution for you. I don't ask for reimbursement. I don't get annoyed at them. I just make a little note to myself. Hey, this family, it doesn't suit them to have stuff lent out. So they need to have permanent copies and just do without the lending resources. So that's how you start a lending library. Here's your one thing for this week. If you don't already have a lending library, your homework is to put this on your budget for next year. Even if it's a small version of this, even if you start with just five games or three books that you want to lend out to students periodically, start small, expand later. If you do already have a lending library in your piano studio, pick one improvement from this post, one thing I suggested that you don't currently do and you think sounds like a good idea, and implement it this week. Yes, this week, folks. Get on it. Choose something small and doable. Every little helps. And just get it done. I would love to hear some of the systems that you have in your own lending library and how it works for you and some pitfalls that maybe others could avoid. Let us know in the show notes for this episode. It's at vibrantmusicteaching.com slash 170 or colorfulkeys.ie slash 170 or you can find me on Facebook in the Vibrant Music Studio Teachers group or on Instagram at colorfulkeys. I'll see you there. 
Vibrant Music Teaching members get five new games or resources at least every single month that keep them inspired and wanting to become a better teacher each and every day. If you want to join the best community of teachers online, you can go to vmt.ninja and sign up today. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Vibrant Music Teaching Podcast. I hope you loved it and I wanted to pop on here one more time to remind you about our event. It's happening in Cincinnati this July and you can get all the details at vibrantmusicteaching.com slash turbo. See you there.